You're listening to Redeeming Grace Audio. For more resources or messages, check out redeeminggracecc.com. All right, good morning, church. Good morning. If you have your Bibles this morning, go ahead and turn with me to Lamentations chapter 3. Lamentations chapter 3. And when you're, while you're turning there, I want to tell you a story about Inky Johnson. On September 9th, 2006, Inky Johnson's life changed forever. Inky Johnson was a defensive back at the University of Tennessee. And that day, just like any other day, he made a clean hit on a player down the sidelines with a little over two minutes left to go in the fourth quarter. And that day was different because Inky fell to the ground, and he describes it as the breath being knocked out of him, and he couldn't get up. The coaches and the doctors surrounded him, and they said, Inky, can you move? And can you move your arms? And he said, I could lift my left arm, but I couldn't move my right arm. So the stretcher came out, they put Inky on the stretcher, and they start rolling him off the field, and he pumps his left hand in the air, and he says, I'm thinking, I'll be back. Because earlier that week, Inky Johnson had sat down with his defensive backs coach, and his defensive backs coach told him, Inky, you're 10 games away. 10 games stand between you and a projected first-round pick in the NFL draft, which includes a multi-million dollar contract. For Inky, his injury that ended his football career wasn't just about not playing football anymore. It was about changing his lifestyle. So Inky Johnson had grown up in East Atlanta in a neighborhood called Kirkwood. He was born to a 16-year-old mother, and he had grown up in a, in a rough area that was full of gang members and drug dealers. And people like Inky Johnson, he says in his neighborhood, they didn't go to college. And one day, a coach came by and had given them the opportunity to play, he and his cousins, to play rec league football. Nicky worked hard every night while his mother worked a double, double shift at Wendy's. And then eventually he got the opportunity to play high school football and eventually got a scholarship to the University of Tennessee. And he said, all of our dreams are going to come true. Our lives are going to change because I'm 10 games away from a multi-million dollar contract and playing in the NFL and lifting my family out of generational poverty. And then in a moment, it goes away. In a moment, his life changes. In a moment, his dreams come crashing down on him. The passage we're going to look at this morning puts the nation or the, the city of Jerusalem in a similar situation where all that they had hoped for, all the promises they thought they had, kind of seems like it just fades away. And the prophet speaks to this. And the prophet in Lamentations talks about calamity and despair and tragedy. And you may have come in here this morning and you may have the same kind of thing on your shoulders. You may not have had a multi-million dollar contract staring you in the face, but you may have some calamity and despair and tragedy weighing heavy on you this morning as you come into worship. And I want you to know that we have a hope this morning that's greater than our circumstances. I'm going to read our passage in a moment, but before I do, I want to tell you a little bit about personal context with this and then also some background on the passage that speaks to this as well. So I first remember ever hearing this verse during high, my high school years. I remember I rolled into youth group one night and I felt that heaviness on my shoulders. I remember that particular night I was really struggling with some anxiety in my life. I was struggling with school. I was struggling with relationships. I was struggling with my relationship with the Lord. And I sat down in our student ministry 
And we had a guest speaker that night who later would become a mentor and a friend to me. His name was Lynn Floyd. Lynn was a USC2 missionary with the North American <laughs> Mission Board. And he had just come from Texas to Georgia. And he spoke on this verse that night. And I remember when I heard those words that he read. It is of your mercies that we are not consumed. They are new every day. Great is thy faithfulness. I remember how those verses washed over me and they cleansed my soul. And I hope the same is true for you this morning. If you're coming in here with a heavy heart or you've got some things going on in your life that seems like tragedy or seems like trials or, or maybe you're just struggling with the ordinariness of life, man, I hope that these verses wash over your soul this morning. And I hope you know that the Lord's mercies are new every single morning, because I heard those verses on that particular night in high school, and high school was a few years ago for me now, but over the years, they have continued to wash over my soul. When times get difficult, and things get hard, and stress comes, and anxiety comes, I'm just reminded by the Holy Spirit that the Lord's mercies are new every single morning. And that's good news for us this morning. I want to give you a little background on the passage. So traditionally, the author of Lamentations is attributed to the prophet Jeremiah. And he's written this, this Lamentations poems in response to the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians in about 587 A.D., the book tells of horrible destruction, loss of life, and salvation, <clears throat> starvation through siege. Though there is no direct evidence that Isaiah wrote the book from the book itself, for example, the book doesn't claim Jeremiah is the author, there are passages that distinctly recall his character and his language, especially in chapter 3, where we'll be this morning. This book consists of several poems, and they're somewhat similar in style. Sometimes they talk of the individual. Sometimes they speak of the community. So some scholars have debated whether it's uh, Jeremiah who wrote this book or the, the book was penned by various authors. But the setting is during the Babylonian exile, and it makes a perfect sequel to the book of Jeremiah. In the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah is foretelling of the destruction of Israel. And then Lamentations comes behind it, and it tells about the actual devastation, the actual destruction of, the, of, the, of Jerusalem. And as, they're as he's talking about this, he finds hope in the midst of all of that destruction and of all of that calamity. But nonetheless, Lamentations expresses the pain and laments the suffering. This book is five chapters long, and each chapter is a different poem. And these poems are similar to what we might see in other poetic biblical literature like the Psalms. And there's several things that these have in common, several different themes that we see throughout the five chapters. The first is complaints about adversity. The second is a confession of trust. And then third, we see an appeal for deliverance on the ground of the Lord's character and covenant. The purpose of Lamentations is to teach us that to disobey God is to surely invite disaster. However, God is always trustworthy, God is always good, and God is always merciful. So therefore, we can hope in Him no matter what our circumstance. 
If you would, read with me Lamentations chapter 3. We'll be in verses 19 through 24 this morning. I remember my affliction and my wondering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Would you join me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we pause right now to ask your blessing on the preaching of your word. God, we pray that you would speak to us this morning. We pray that we would see Jesus and him only. And Father, the passage that we're dealing with this morning is a heavy passage that deals with destruction coming before it, but then there's also great hope in this passage, and that hope can only be found in you. So God, this morning I pray that you would speak hope and you would speak truth into our hearts. Father, we may have come into the worship service this morning feeling consumed by external circumstances or things that are in our heart, but we know that you are greater than those things. And so, Father, we ask that you would bring this morning a spirit of conviction where there needs to be conviction, that you would bring a spirit of encouragement where there needs to be encouragement. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen. So the bottom line this morning, the main point of the message is this. It's that no matter what our circumstances, we may recall to mind that our hope is in God alone. No matter what our circumstances are this morning, we can recall to mind that our hope is in God alone. God is the only one who can bring peace. God is the only one who can bring encouragement. God is the only one who can bring salvation no matter what the circumstance is. I've stood beside hospital beds and I've stood beside gravesides. And when I do that, I always pray one thing, whether it's, it's someone that I know very well or someone that, that I've just kind of met, I pray for God to bring a peace that passes all understanding. Because in those kinds of circumstances in life, when we're standing beside hospital beds and gravesides and destruction and devastation has come into our lives, there's not anything that you can do or I can do or I can say or you can say that will bring that kind of peace that God alone can bring. He is the only one who can bring that. He is the one who is more powerful and who is bigger than our circumstance. He is the one who has taken away the sting of death. He is the one who is healer. And so we have to make sure that we're praying for him to speak into those circumstances because we recall to mind that our hope is in God alone. It's not in our circumstance and it's not in anything in this life because God has promised us and given us so much more. And so I want to pull three things from this passage. The first one is this, when we remember our hope is in God alone, we are reminded that he is greater than our afflictions and our wonderings. We are reminded that he is greater than our afflictions and our wonderings. And in verse 18, we see the speaker has reached the lowest ebb of despair. All hope is gone. Then in verses 19 and 20, we see that the sufferings are so deeply impressed on his heart that he is constantly thinking of them and he is left depressed and despondent. 
In verse 21, at the very moment of deepest despair, there's a remarkable transition, though. And the transition is this. He remembers the Lord. And he remembers that the hope that he has is in the Lord. And hopelessness turns to hope. And so I think there's two reasons in this passage and in your life and in my life that we oftentimes lose hope and we may feel like God is far away. If you read the first three chapters before we get to verse 19 of Lamentations, you see the speaker's emotions in this and you see that he feels like God is far away and he has no hope and that God has left him. But then miraculously by the power of God, he remembers where his hope is And I think that two reasons come into play here. The first one is this, it's affliction. And affliction is is something that may be internal or it may be external. And Jeremiah's condition here is a parallel to that of Jerusalem. He has inward turmoil. We see that in verse five. And he has outward affliction. We see that in verse 19. And And it pushes him into a deep place of despair. And sometimes affliction does come from our own doing, and we'll talk about that next. But sometimes affliction comes as the result of simply living in a fallen world and the outside circumstances that we have. One commentator summed up the book of Lamentations this way. He said, life is hard, but God is good. Life is hard, but God is good. I love that because it's so true. When you've gone through life enough, you know that life is hard. But then when you've trusted God and you've seen God work enough, you know that God is so good. I remember a conversation with Miss Kathy. Miss Kathy was um, a leader for our, our student ministry when I was doing student ministry, and she was just an incredible woman of God, somebody that you, Proverbs 31 kind of woman that just constantly trusted God. And um, we, we found out one week that Miss Kathy was undergoing some tests to find out whether or not she had cancer. Man, we circled around Miss Kathy and we prayed for Miss Kathy and we hoped and we prayed that the results would come back good. And so they did. They came back that she did not have cancer. And we were so happy and we rejoiced with her so much. I remember the Sunday after we found out the test results, we're standing in the lobby at the church and we're just celebrating with her. And another lady comes up and they said, Kathy, we heard about your results and we're so happy. God is so good. And I'll never forget how Miss Kathy responded. She said, yes, God is so good and I am so thankful. But I want you to know, even if the test results came back and I had cancer, God would still be good. And that's the kind of faith that I want to have. That's the kind of faith that we can have when we recall to mind how good God is and that our hope is only in him. And so we have an affliction where we have tragedy and You may not have something going on in your life right now like Inky Johnson or Miss Kathy, but you may have just the ordinariness of life, the ordinariness of everyday life. And and you know and I know that just in living life, life can get hard, right? Like we can have times where we're just, there's no real reason, but we're just discouraged. We just may have some stress. We may have some anxiety in our hearts and we're not maybe even sure where that's coming from. And there's, there's something that, uh, there's a hymn, one of my favorite hymns is Great is Thy Faithfulness. And I love that hymn. It was penned by, uh, by Thomas Chislam in 1925. 
And he wrote the hymn as a testament to God's faithfulness through, he says, his ordinary life. Chislin was born in a log cabin in Franklin, Kentucky, and he became a Christian at the age of 27. He grew in his faith, and he entered the ministry at age 36. Though poor health forced him to retire from the ministry just a year later. During the rest of his life, he spent most of his life in New Jersey working as a life insurance agent. God used him at his desk job to write nearly 1,200 poems and have several published hymns, including Greatest Thy Faithfulness. And then Chislam explains toward the end of his life how he perceived this. I want you to listen to this. He says, my income has not been large at any time due to impaired health in the earlier years and has followed me until now. Although I must not fail to record here the unfailing faithfulness of a covenant-keeping God that he has given me many wonderful displays of his providing care, for which I am filled with astonishing gratefulness. And so whether it's a tragedy that comes into your life that brings suffering, or whether it's what Chislam calls an everyday kind of tragedy, just the ordinariness of life, that we live in a fallen world, recall to mind when your affliction comes, the great hope that we have in the Lord. But then we can also get affliction from sin. We can get affliction from sin in our lives. And to sin just simply means that we have all gone against God. And when we go against God, we are separated from God. I'm going to read some passages. If you want to turn there with me, you're welcome to. Some of these you, you may have written on your heart. The first one is um, sorry, Romans chapter 3, verse 23. Romans 3, 23 says, For all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. And then verse 24, And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Not of ourselves, but through Christ Jesus. Next passage I want to read is Romans 6.23. Romans 6.23 tells us this. It says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We can draw from these texts that without mercy, there is no hope. Without mercy, we've all sinned, and the wages of sin is death. It's eternal separation because we have all gone against God. And that's why we sing or we say, we confess every day that no one is better, no one is worse, right? We all come into this service. We all go through life together on equal footing because we have all gone against God. But then God is rich in mercy, and he offers us this free gift through his son, Jesus. And it's an incredible transformation that we have in our lives. And I want us to look at Psalm chapter 51. Psalm chapter 51. And this is David's confession. And you likely know the story of David, and he had sinned with Bathsheba. He had sent Uriah out on the front lines to be killed. And Nathan the prophet calls him out on it. And this is David's confession in Psalm 51. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you only have I sinned 
and done what is evil in your sight, so you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. And then I want us to skip down to verse 17. This is the promise from God. It says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. And so sin comes into our life. And John Bunyan says that one leak will sink a ship and one sin will destroy the sinner. So it doesn't matter how great or how small our sin is. If we've gone against God, we're in desperate need of God's forgiveness. And the only hope that we have for forgiveness is him because he has this promise. As David is confessing his sin, he knows in his heart that God stands ready and willing to forgive him. He says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. God does not despise those things. That means he doesn't reject those things. So if you're coming in this morning and you're struggling with sin in your life and you can't get free from that, know that God has promised to set you free. And he's promised to set you free if you respond in repentance. If you respond with a broken spirit and a contrite heart, God will accept you and God will forgive you. And then we also need to remember that our hope is in God alone. And when we do that, secondly, we are reminded of his love and his mercy. His love and his mercy. So I want to look at each of these words. First, love. In verses 22 through 24, the broken mood of despair is interrupted. It's, just, it's replaced by a beautiful affirmation of hope. And that affirmation of hope comes as a result of the love of God. The foundation for hope is God's great love. This comes from the Hebrew word hesed. And it sometimes is translated as covenant love or loyal love. The meaning is loyalty or faithfulness toward a loved one. And this is most pronounced in God's relationship to his people, in God's relationship to humanity. He has this hesed love that he gives us. It's a faithful love. It's a love that says God holds us, we don't hold him. It's a kind of love that says God has lavished this love. He's poured out this love on us, regardless of what we have done or what we have not done. There is nothing that you can do or I can ever do to earn God's love. It's just simply is who he is. God is love. And hesed love comes to us in spite of us going against God. His hesed love does not give up on you. And so I want you to know this morning, if you're here and you think maybe God's given up on you, God hasn't given up on you. God still has his hesed love, his loyal love, his faithful love that he is ready to pour out and pour into your life. No matter what you've been through, no matter who else has rejected you, no matter what else you have done, God has hesed love for you. And then we have this word mercy. I love the word mercy. We also see that this mercy is a kind of compassion. And the word describes a tender 
or a caring kind of love. It's the kind of love that you would see a mother have for her child, right? Ain't nothing like mama's love, right? Mama always loves you no matter what. And that's the kind of compassion that we have here. It's a kind of compassion that is always going to love you, that's always going to be there for you, that's always going to hurt when you hurt, that's always going to rejoice when you rejoice, that always is going to hope that your dreams come true, that is always going to want the best for you. That's the kind of compassion that God has here. And it's of his mercy that we are not consumed because mercy holds no record of wrong. Mercy holds no record of debt. It is the mercy of God and it, that is loving kindness. And it is the loving kindness of God that leads us to repentance. I'm going to turn to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So that's the mercy of God. He may be slow, but he's slow because he loves you. He's slow because he's compassionate towards you. He's slow because he has loving kindness towards you, and he wants you to repent. He wants you to come to him with that broken and contrite heart. And so when I think about that compassion kind of love, I can't help think about the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son had taken his inheritance, and he had gone out, and he had squandered it all. He had just lived life to what he thought was the fullest, and he ends up sitting in the hog pen, and all of his money's gone, all of his relationships are gone, all of the fun is gone, and he's sitting there in the hog pen with literally nothing left. So he has this idea and he says, I'm going to go back home because my father's servants live better than I'm living right now. And so he heads back home and I love this picture. It says that while the son was still a long way off, the father runs to him. I love that because how many times in my life and how many times in your life has the father run to us? And he wraps his arms around the son and he reminds him how much he loves him and he puts a robe on him and he puts a ring on his finger and he says, we're going to have a party and we're going to celebrate because my son is here. My son was dead and he's alive. He's back home and he says to the son, oh, you're not coming in as a servant. You're coming in as a son. The old room is still ready. We're going to have a party all your stuff's still here, and we're going to keep celebrating because you never stopped being my son. That's the kind of mercy that God has for you and the kind of mercy that God has for me. And so when we see this, we also see that God is loving and he is compassionate. And then we also remember that our hope is in God alone, and we are reminded to respond in faith and praise. We are reminded to respond in faith and praise is the third thing we see in this passage. And so Hebrews 11, 1 and 2 tells us the definition of faith. It tells us it's the substance of things not seen. And it's believing in something that you can't see. It's trusting God and it's being trustworthy. And so I, I try to illustrate this by 
um, sharing a, a uh, embarrassing kind of story. So my embarrassing story is, I don't know if you ever have had like a public embarrassing moment, but I was in Walmart a while back and uh, my wife was shopping. And so I sat down to wait. And so I said, you know what? I'm going to sit down in this chair in the lawn and garden section, right? So I sit down in the chair in the lawn and garden section and no joke, as soon as I sat down, all four legs of the chair spring off into four different directions. And I hit the floor as hard as I can. And so my first thought was, maybe nobody saw that. And so I kind of started looking around, and I lock eyes with Larry Anderson. Larry Anderson is one of my former bosses. He's the uh, executive director for Metro Atlanta Youth for Christ. And so I, I lock eyes with the executive director of Metro Atlanta for Youth for Christ. And I was like, oh, man, <laughs> that was really embarrassing. Um, and so, I, you know, when we, when we put our faith in something and it doesn't work, we're always disappointed, right? We always put our, a lot of times we put our faith in things that just don't work out. It might be a chair in the lawn and garden section at Walmart. It might be the Georgia Bulldogs when they play South Carolina. It might be all kinds of different things that we put our faith in. And, and faith is a kind of hope. But then when we, when we put our faith in Jesus and we have this kind of hope, it's not that kind of hope, like I hope something will happen. I have faith that the dogs are going to win. I have faith that this is going to happen. It's the kind of faith where we say, I'm putting all of my weight on it. I'm putting all of my trust on it. And so in contrast to what happened to me at Walmart, when you all came into worship this morning and you sat down, I didn't really notice anybody, you know, checking out how sturdy the chair is, right? Like I didn't kind of see anybody give a test run. You guys came in and you just sat down. You put all of your faith, you put all of your trust, you put all of your weight on the chair. And that's the kind of faith that we're to have. That's the kind of faith that we see in Lamentations when we recall to mind the hope that we have in the Lord. It's not a kind of hope where we're saying, I hope the Lord might do something. I hope the Lord is greater than my affliction. I hope the Lord is greater than my sin. It's saying, I know that the Lord is greater than those things. And because of that, I'm putting all of my weight, I'm putting all of my trust in him and in him alone, because I know that nothing else can hold me up because I've tried the other things and it doesn't work, right? God is the only thing that works. And so we see that we're supposed to have this faith, believing that God is who he says he is and that God will do all that he has promised to do. But then we also see worship in this passage. The writer of Lamentations says, great is thy faithfulness. And so it's impossible to experience the mercy and the love of God and put all of our weight on God, all of our trust in God, and then not praise him. That's the natural progression. That's the flow. When we see God and we see his goodness and we experience that, it's not something that we take for granted. It's something that we lean into and that we want more of and we want to experience God more and we want to lift him up and we want to give him praise and we want to give him adoration. And so we see an incredible picture of this in Isaiah chapter six. I'm going to read a few verses from Isaiah. It says, in the year the King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. 
Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his eyes. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And they called out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook, and the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Listen to this. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. And Isaiah, Isaiah worships in this moment. And it says, it starts off, it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah had been the king for 52 years. And so I would imagine that in this moment, in the year that Isaiah saw the Lord, there's some calamity, there's some despair, there's some uncertainty right? And Isaiah sees the Lord and he says, woe is me. And when a prophet would pronounce woe, it meant he was pronouncing destruction. And so a lot of times in the Old Testament, you see prophets pronounce woe on a city. And that meant that the city was going to meet certain destruction at the hand of the Lord, at the wrath of God. And Isaiah pronounces that among himself. He said, I've seen the Lord and the Lord is holy and I am not holy. And so I'm going to experience this destruction, and I stand no chance. And then one of the seraphim takes the tongs from the altar, and he brings it, and he touches his mouth, and he says, you've been made clean. Your, your sin is atoned for. And it's not because of anything Isaiah did. Isaiah was a man of unclean lips. He was in the midst of a people of unclean lips. His confession is true. But then we know who God is. And we know that God is the one who atones. And as a result of that, we can't help but, but respond in worship and obedience. The questions asked in this passage in Isaiah, who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. The same man who just sentences earlier had pronounced woe and destruction on himself once he's been cleansed and his sin has been atoned for and he recalls to mind the hope that he has in the Lord. He says, I'll go, send me, I'll tell people about him. So worship causes us to worship God and worship causes us to tell other people about the goodness of God. And once you've experienced that in your heart and it's taken hold of you, you can't help but talk about it. You can't help but for it to come out of you. And so I want to ask you this morning, do you, do you come in here feeling uh, consumed? Is there trouble in your life? Is there calamity in your life? I want you to know that God stands ready to, to bring you hope, and then he wants you to worship him. I think a lot of times as Christians, we may feel unworthy to worship. And I think the good news is we are unworthy to worship, but God has given us a pathway to do that. God has given us a means to worship him because of what Jesus has done. I want you to look at Romans 8 with me. Romans 8, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And if you come into the service this morning with your heart heavy and a weight on your shoulders, I want you to take that and I want you to, to remember that in light of this passage. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And so if you want to know this morning how you can say, I am not consumed and I am experiencing the love and the mercy of God and I am praising God, saying great is his faithfulness, it's because of that. It's because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the law of sin and death can't stand against the law of spirit and life. So I want to read to you a quote that I came across this week, and it was so good for my soul, and I hope it is for you as well. John Piper says, There is no other religion whose diagnosis of our condition is more penetrating and true to life than biblical Christianity. There is no other religion that offers a remedy for real guilt and real remorse and real rebellion and real observed alienation from God and real deserved fear of the future. Only Christianity shows us that God has made a way for himself to be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. When Christ died for our sins and rose again, God's honor and God's righteousness were vindicated. And in the very same act, Christ became our substitute. He bore the punishment of my sin, and he completed the demand for my righteousness. He has done what I could never do, bear my sins and be my righteousness. And so when we think about the Lord's mercy, and we read verse 19 of Lamentations chapter 3, and we remember our affliction and our wonderings, we remember the bitterness and the gall, let us also remember and call to, recall to mind that we have a hope because Christ has taken on our sin. He has become my sin and he has become my righteousness. And so I want us to end this morning by just thinking about how to layer this over our lives. So if you're here and you're in the under 30 crowd, you may not remember this, but when I was in school, they taught us with transparencies. Um, We don't teach with transparencies anymore, but there was a day when we did, and you would lay a transparency down, and it might be a map or something. And then you would lay maybe something else that represents population over the top of that map, and you would get to see how things stack on top of one another. And so that's what I want you to kind of do this morning with some of the things that I'm going to give you. I want you to take what we've read and what we've said about the goodness of God, the love of God, the mercy of God, how it's his mercy, of his mercy that we are not consumed. And then I want you to kind of lay some of these more practical points on top of that and let them work together in your life this week. And so before I give you some some practical points, I want to read this. Um, Charles Williams' novels writes about characters who vicariously bear one another's burdens and pain. One character may say to to another, are you afraid? I'll be afraid for you. Are you in pain? I'll be in pain for you. And we may want to do that, especially with our children, right? If we could vicariously take their fear, if we could vicariously take their pain away, we would do that in a heartbeat. And 
We can't do that, though, no matter how much we would like to. But God can, and God has done that. He has taken our fear, he has taken our pain, and he did it with Jesus on the cross as our sacrifice, as our substitute. And God's mercies are new every single morning because of what Jesus did on the cross. Great indeed is his faithfulness. So a few things just to do this week. Number one, I want you to know that the answer is the gospel. If you're here and you're not a believer, then you have every right to feel consumed. You have every right to wonder where the hope is. Because we've said this morning, the only hope that we have is in God. And the only way to come to God is through Jesus. And so we want you to do that before you leave here this morning. I want you to, when we pray, you can pray with us. You can get with one of our pastors here and pray with them, one of our small group leaders, a friend who brought you, just whatever it takes. Make sure that you get your relationship right with with God through Christ Jesus, because that is our hope. And that's the greatest news that I can give you this morning. And then the second part of this, as we think about the gospel being the answer, is that we recall to mind the gospel. See, the gospel isn't a one and done thing. The gospel isn't just for salvation and then we kind of go about life like we always have. No, the gospel is for applying and preaching to ourselves every single day. And we do that through a few different means. One is through corporate worship and this local expression of God's church, we participate in the ordinances. We have communion, we have baptisms, and and that's one way that we recall to mind what God has done. I love that Chris says often, remember your baptism, because that reminds us of the hope that we have in the Lord. And then I want to give you three things to do in addition to that on a daily basis. Read, pray, and sing. Read, pray, and sing. Read the word, because in every page, you see Jesus. On every page, you see the mercy of God. Every page, you see that God's mercies are new every single morning, and you see his faithfulness. And then also pray. Pray that God would appropriate that truth into your heart, that every day as you go to work, as every day as you take care of your children, every day as, as you go out and play in the community, whatever it is that God has your hand doing, pray that you would help, that he would help you experience his mercy and his grace moment by moment. And then the last thing is to sing. And this is the praise part, right? And this is the part that we can all do. Now, listen, I got kicked out of youth choir in church. I can't sing Save My Life, but I sing many mornings on my drive to work because I'm worshiping. Singing isn't about carrying a tune. Singing is about getting your heart in tune with who Jesus is. Singing is about knowing that he is worthy of our worship, and we're giving him our praise and our adoration, and our hearts are indeed saying, great is thy faithfulness. And so I want to pray this morning that God would appropriate that truth into our hearts. Would you join me as we pray? Heavenly Father, this morning we pray that you would take your word and that you would appropriate it into our hearts. God, we pray that when tragedy comes and despair comes, when our hearts feel despondent through major events or through just the ordinariness of life, that you would help us to recall to mind the hope that we have in you, the hope that you've given us and you've proved your love for us. You've proven your mercy for us by sending your son Jesus to die on the cross in our place. He is our righteousness. And so because of that this morning, 
God, we say great is thy faithfulness. You are the faithful one. And so this morning we worship you. I pray that you would draw us to yourself this week and you would help us to recall these things to mind through the power of your spirit. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.